You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Good morning, church. Yeah, uh, thanks for this opportunity to speak at the church. Um, it's, it, you know, it never gets any um, better or easier. Um, so pray for me. Um, um, Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that we can come to your word. We thank you, O oh God, because uh, this word has been alive ever since you've spoken it, and it's still alive today. And so, Father, we pray, O oh God, that you will do your work on our hearts, um, every scale, every hardness, every callous of our heart, Father, Lord, that you will strip away, and that your word will pierce into it, and it will do the work it was designed to do, Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, so... Anyone here knows who Anton Deck is? Show of hands. Okay, probably like I don't know, seventy percent of the people. Um, I thought I thought this was the UK last time I checked, so I thought everyone should know them. <laughs> but I think we'll all agree that they're celebrities, um, and we recently heard um, the news that one of them, Ant, um, was involved in a in a drink driving incident, and, and he had to be um, he's going to be dragged in front of a judge. And then his case will, you know, run the, the normal course of things. And um, I was just thinking about this in line with the, the message today, um, that, you know, how, how the mighty have fallen, you know. We see these cases sometimes come up where we have the celebrities. Of, we, there are, we see a lot of times are supposed to be role models, but things happen in their lives. And I, I think, actually, it would be good for us to, um, in our time of prayer, pray for um, Aunt um, and Deck, um, but you know, pray for Ant because um, I don't know what's driven him um, to do what he he did, um, but it, it might be something that's really dark. So let's pray for them because ultimately, uh, modern fame, modern money, they need Christ the most. So let's remember them in our prayers. Um, so we've um, we're coming to the end of our series in First Samuel, and. Um, this is, we're going to be looking at chapter 31, which is looking at the end of Saul's life. So um, I'm just going to read straight from 1 Samuel 31, if you follow me. It says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchashua. The sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Let this uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day. And when the men of Israel went on the other side, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and the sun and the souls were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. And the next day, the Philistines came to strip the slain, and found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messages through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news of the house 
to, to, to carry the good news to the house of the idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his son from the, well, from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. And so we see the closing chapter of Saul's life. We see that it takes his final stand against the Philistines on an area called Mount Gilboa. And I was, as I was reading this, um, I saw a, a bit of a history nerd and a bit of a military um, history um, nerd or enthusiast. I noticed that Saul and his sons were fighting on Mount Gilboa. So I'm, I'm hazarding a guess that they had a high ground in terms of the, the points, the vantage points, in terms of their actual um, you know, location and their base. And so that's the, they had advantage in that regards if they were on top of Mount, Mount Gilboa. But it looks like they were you know, slain on that mount, even though they had that advantage. But we see here is God's judgment on Saul and uh, a tragedy. Because if you've been following us for the past few weeks, you will read about Saul being this extremely tall guy. It says he was a head taller than most people. So if we were all standing here, you, you could easily point to Saul. And he was a, a timid man who had no desire for kingship, no desire for glory, but God called him and God bestowed upon him the kingdom of, of Israel and told him that he will now be a prince among the people and he will lead his people. And we see he was anointed. We saw he, he prophesied with the prophets that there was a saying saying, is Saul now amongst the prophets? And we saw Later on in his life, there was a, a, a wicked man like Naash who came to the city of, of Jabesh Gilead. And he said to the people of Jabesh Gilead, I'll accept your surrender if every man here removes his right eye. And Saul heard about our message and he was upset. He was, he was angry at the injustice and at the cruelty of Nahash. And he was so burned with, with anger against this injustice that he rallied the men of Israel. 300,000 strong men. And then he went to Jabesh Gilead and routed Naash. This was the beginning of Saul's life. So much expectation, um, so much hope, so much potential that we see in Saul's life. But then as time went on, we see that Saul began to do things his own way. We saw God give him an instruction to read, to utterly destroy the Amalekites for what they did to the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt. But Saul did not obey God fully in that. And then later on, we see that Saul, um, when it was supposed to have a, 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 there was a battle for, with the Philistines, he was supposed to wait for um, Samuel to arrive and for the sacrificing of the animals to honor God, to pray, for, to, pray to God before the battle. But Saul was, you know, he was so concerned about, you know, we're, we're wasting time, we're delaying and all this thing. He wasn't waiting on God. And so what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. He carries out a sacrifice. Samuel comes and says to him, what have you done? And Saul says, oh, I'm sorry, I repent. And then Samuel says to him, God is going to take away the kingdom from your hand because you do not listen to the voice of God. And what does Saul say? Rather than Saul to say, have mercy. He says to Samuel, please, please, honor me in front of the men. Saul was concerned about how 
Samuel, the priest, would, would, the prophet, would look in front, arguing in front of the men. And so he was more concerned about his own respectability among the men than how God felt about what he was doing. And this was the flaw that Saul had. And we saw it through his life. And we see that Saul, in his, in his concern about who he was and how people perceived him, forgot that God was the one that called him. And it's more important how God perceived him. And it reads like a Greek tragedy where you have this hero that has all these inherent qualities and attributes. But even in them is that inherent flaw. And that flaw is ultimately what brings them down. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, how did we get to this point? How did, how did we get from a point where you had this, this young man with such great promise dying a shameful death on Mount Gilboa? And the scripture reminds us that lest he, let he who thinks stands fall. Or lest he who thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. And this is a crucial um, encouragement from scripture. Because scripture lets us know that all these things are written for our own benefit. The story of Saul, the story of Samuel, the story of David are written that we may learn from them, that we may grow from them, that we may not make the same mistakes they made. It says that Samuel reminds Saul because his disobedience to God was what led to his downfall. Now there was another man who disobeyed God. His name was David. David killed, well, he first committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he had a husband murdered. In doing so, David dishonored God. He lied, he committed murder, committed adultery, dishonored his family. He, he was coveting against his neighbor property. If you go through the list, he broke all the Ten Commandments, every single one of them. And then when the prophet Nathan comes to David and he challenges David and says, Thou, O king, at that man. What does David do? David's first inclination is not to say, Oh, let's not let the guards hear about this. Let's not hear, let's not let the, the council of elders hear about this. But what does David do? He falls flat on his face and he repents in dust and ashes. And we read in his prayer in Psalm 51, and he says, Against you, and you, O oh Lord, have I sinned. And that's a very, very um, interesting prayer. Because if I commit adultery against, you know, I take another man's wife, and then I had that man killed, and destroy his family, and destroy his life, I don't, the first thing that comes to mind is not, oh, I've sinned. I first think, oh my goodness, I've done something bad against someone. But ultimately, David knows that it is God that he is dishonored, and God that he sinned. And he repented. He does not shy away from the consequence of his sin. The, the child that was sired between him and Bathsheba, the first child, died. He mourned for that child. His kingdom was divided. His son tried to kill him. So there was a great consequence to his sin. And he never shies away from that. But he turns to God for mercy. He turns to God for mercy. And we see that that was the biggest difference, I would say, between Saul and David. Saul was more concerned about how do men perceive me? And David said, I've sinned against God. Can I be right with you again, God? And so we say to ourselves, what is it that we do in our own lives that we're so concerned about 
how people perceive us. I think this is something we're susceptible to. If we've been, been in the church for a long time, if people see us in a particular light, you know, we're elders or we are pastors or speakers or we serve or we are leading a team or a ministry, we're quite concerned about how people will see us. But we have to remember that we don't give accounts to people ultimately. We give account to God. He, he is the one we give ultimate account to. And so we have to remind ourselves again, let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And that's a very important um, instruction that is written by Paul in 1 Corinthians um, verses, um, chapter 10. It's very important because in the context that we live in, in the Christian context, um, we are from the traditions of the reformers. Um, and we are from the traditions of, of Paul and Christ himself. We talk about grace. We talk about the fact that we are saved by grace. We talk about the fact that we take our stand in Christ's grace. And we, we talk about the fact that um, you know, we, we, we might have sinned, but God's grace saves us. He helps us. Right? But we also make this mistake often. We, f- we then use that grace as a cover to sin or to say, oh, well, it's not that big a deal because you know grace. I can do whatever I want because you know grace. You know, I, I don't really need to repent because you know grace. But it's very important that we listen to this instruction because the same Paul who wrote about God's grace and, and, and explains the grace that comes through Christ this is also the same Paul that says, Take heed. Watch your step. Watch how you stand. It says, Satan is like a roaring lion looking for whom to devour. And so we have to be on, on watch out. We have to be on a lookout. We have to watch what we're doing. We have to watch our heart. So what I really want to get into here is how do we endure to the end? How do we... Um, how do we not end up like Saul? How do we learn from Saul's mistakes? What do we do? I'm quite concerned about that. I'm an engineer by background, and I like to... So, okay, what's the solution to this? How do we um, fix this? What do we do? And so there's some three things that we'll focus on today. The first thing is that we keep our eyes on the prize. Now, whenever you hear the language of the faith in Christ, of, of Christianity as a were. Whenever you hear the language in scriptures, it's always the language of a race, of a long-distance race. And I was sharing before that one of the things that I really, 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 really don't like is long-distance race. I really don't like it. Um, I'm part of the, um, the live group, um, they, uh, that we do the park run, um, and sometimes I ask myself, why did I do this? <laughs> I usually ask myself that question in the midst of the race. Um, and that's because it's, it's long. It's not a short bur- burst, you know, a, a hundred meters dash or a 50 meters dash. I play rugby, or I played rugby, and my position was center, and I think it's the best position um, and it seems center or winger because it is the position of glory. It is, this are, these, these are the equivalent of the strikers on the, on the football pitch because these are the guys that you get the ball, they have a nice shot dash, do really nice flashy moves, and they score a try, and everyone is celebrating them. 
But the real grafters, the real heroes on a rugby pitch, and I'm sure Tim Mann identifies with this, are the forwards. The forwards are the real workers on the rugby pitch because they have to get across the pitch to every breakdown. That's, that's difficult. And so I watch these guys, and, and I just admire their work, and I can't wait for them to pass on the ball so I can score that try. <laughs> and the Christian race is like that. It is an, a long-distance thing. It's an enduring, it's, a, it's, it's something that needs endurance. And we will see this in some of the scriptures we're reading. It says in Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we look here in the language um, that Paul um, writes here. It talks about a race. You see the word like run. You see the word like endurance. Endurance is used twice in this. And it talks about laying aside every weight and sin. And it's, it's key here because sin is definitely bad for you. Sin is definitely something that upsets or, or displeases God because it is uh, an affront against God's glory. But weight is not necessarily an affront to God's glory. So weight could be work. God has given us, um, has called us to work as men, to apply our hands to work. So work is not a bad thing, but work can become a weight. It can become a distraction. If you look at an athlete that goes to run, you see they come out in their track suits and they walk out with their bags. But they never go running with their bags, although their bag is not a bad thing. It contains the contents, their, their, their track shoes and, and, their, and their outfit and everything they need, and their, their water bottles and everything. But they don't run with it. Why? Because it's a weight. It serves them no purpose on the journey. And so as Christians, we've been called to lay aside every weight. It could be some relationships that are not, are not healthy for us. It could be, you know, Christ says, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge your eye. Gouge it out. Reminds me of Naash. But Christ wasn't trying to be like Naash. He was saying if something that is useful to you is actually standing in your way of getting close to God, then take it out of your life. It's not necessary for that race. It would only serve to retard you, to draw you back. And so we go to 2 Timothy 4, and Paul talks about, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That is 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Now this is Paul talking in terms of a boxer. Boxing, if you're not fighting Mike Tyson or someone that brutal, it tends to last about 15 rounds. Am I wrong? Is it 14 rounds or 15 rounds? Yeah? It's a, it's a long distance thing, right? And so it's Paul's talking like a boxer, and he talks about, he talks like an athlete, I finished the race. And there is a store for me, a crown of righteousness. And I think one thing that we make a mistake on as Christians is, what is it that we are all running towards? We always say to ourselves, <clears throat> at the end of this journey, I'm going to heaven. That is true. All will leave this world 
go to be with the Lord in a place that is far better. You know, Paul you know, talks about you know, a place that is far better than here. You know, he says, we do not mourn like those who have no hope. Why? Because there is a place that is far better than here. That's why Paul says that. But I feel that the nature, we miss the nature of the price that we are actually running towards. We think we are running to heaven. And that's our goal. In a sense, yes. But in another sense, that is not our goal. I was at a wedding um, this, this weekend, this Saturday. Um, and and my, my wife's cousin got married yesterday. And it was a great time of rejoicing. Um, and you say to yourself, if you go to a wedding and you got all the music and all the food and everything there, and there is no bride there, there is no groom there, what kind of wedding is that? I've been to a wedding. Oh, great. So how were the bride and groom? Oh, they weren't there. So what were you rejoicing about then? Oh, well, you know, the groom decided to, you know, leave the, the bride at the altar. So what were you rejoicing about then? You see, our ultimate price is Christ himself. It says in Scripture, in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, He says, do not be afraid, for I am your great reward. This was a man that had so much wealth. So much wealth in his time. He was one of the richest men in Mesopotamia, in, 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 that, in Canaan, actually, at that time in history. It would have been a, like a Jeff Bezos or a Bill Gates. So much wealth. So much you know, status. And God had promised him, you're going to have a son. And you're going you're, you're to have, a, a, nations are going to come from you. Kings are going to come from you. Your, your children, your nations are going to be like the stars in heaven. You won't be able to count them. And so you're, you're going to be blessed. But then God turns around and says, I am your great reward. And I think many times we look at that and go, that's, that's nice. God is our reward. But the reason we say that's nice, God is our reward, and we can be flippant about it is because we don't truly understand this nature of God. We don't truly understand this God. That We don't truly understand who God is. And so I'm just going to read a quick passage um, in, first Re- in Revelations um, chapter 1. And I'll read uh, from verses 12. And John said, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the, seven, of, the, of the lampstand was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp wedged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, how many brave people are here? I, wait, wait, I, I'll, I'll take that back. Who's tried to stare into the sun before? Who's done that? I just want to say, I, I've, I've done it. I'll raise my hand up, right? I've, I've been one of those silly guys just, you know, trying to squint, right? It's impossible. It really is impossible. The image described here is not the image of a, a carpenter in a Judean countryside. What does he say? When I fell, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. 
the one whom we worship is the everlasting God. Is the one who was before time existed. Is the one who will be when there is no time. It says in Daniel chapter 7, I saw the ancient of days sat on the throne. And it says his hair was white like wool. His clothes were white like wool. And from his thrones issued fires, just fires gushing out of his throne. And there were multitudes and multitudes worshipping him. This is the God that we worship. It's the most high God. It's the Lord of hosts. Innumerable to count. He speaks and universes appear. When you speak, just dust comes out. When he speaks, the entire universe is formed. And he turns around to Abraham and he says, I am your great reward. That is the God that says he's our great reward. That he says, I am your great reward. What can you have in this world that is bigger than that? That is the prize that we're running towards. That is the Christ that we worship. That is our God. That is the price. There is no heaven without him. And this is what Saul did. He forgot that God was the price. He saw the kingdom God gave to him. He saw the crown. He saw the armies. And he thought, ah, I got this. He forgot God was the one that gave him that. And that God has far more to give him. God is the prize. And the moment you take your eyes off the price, you make, miss the mark. Now, follow me on this, um, this, this. Have this image in your mind. We know one of the greatest runners in our generation is Mo Farah, the greatest, one of the greatest endurance runners in our, in our generation. And we have Mo Farah now on the last leg of his, of his, of his race. Now he's, he's put some daylight between himself and the second guy. And we know he's got it. We know he's bringing back the gold to Britain. We know this is it. And then as he's rounding the, the last bend, his eyes catches a man snapping open his big whopper. And then he forgets. And he goes, that looks really good. And he goes over to the guy and he says, can you, can you chuck me some of that? The whole stadium will go berserk. What is going on here? The... the the, the, the cameras will pan and say, oh, Mo Farah is speaking to a man in the stand asking for a big whopper. <laughs> and the entire conversation, see, someone's going to win that race, but it won't be Mo Farah. No one's going to remember that guy. Everyone's going to be talking about how Mo Farah let go of a race because he wanted a big whopper. And the reason we laugh is because it is ridiculous. And it's the same thing that you and I do when we turn our face away from the ancient of days, that bright radiance, and we look at a big whopper, and we think, oh, well, that looks nice, and we forget that ah, God is far greater. That's why it's important we keep our eyes on the prize, because the moment we keep our eyes off that prize, we lose the race. The second thing we need to do is to watch our stride. It's very important. When I I'm doing my park run. Um, it's something that uh, I, I notice about myself. I breathe like an elephant when I'm running. <laughs> because um, I'm not designed for long-distance running, as you can see. I was born in West Africa, not in East Africa. 
Um, yeah. But it's important that when we run, we watch our stride. We watch how we breathe. We watch how fast we're running. You, know, you hear runners talk about pacing yourself. You know, they've got different segments of the race. It's not just, they don't, if you, if you break it down, they don't just run at one constant pattern. They have different patterns and they put different levels of energy at different stages of the race. Because they're watching the stride, they're controlling their, their, their running, they're breathing, they're watching everything. And it's the same way that we've been called to watch our stride. It says in 1 Timothy 4, it says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's very important that in our race, we watch our life and our doctrine. Both have to match. It's very important. We've got a life to live, but we've got a doctrine that guides us as to how we live that life. It's like in a race, you see people running the race, you see the relay, and these guys have run an absolutely brilliant race. They've handed a baton over, and it's wonderful, and they've gotten gold. And at the end, you see DQ, disqualified, and you think, what is going on? And they play the replay, and we find out that they've handed the baton over the actual margin they're supposed to hand it over, and so they've been disqualified. Or maybe someone puts his leg just outside his lane, into the other person's lane, and then they disqualif- get disqualified. It's in the same way we run this race. We run, there's a doctrine there, the guidance of how we do things. And sometimes we make the mistake and think that, you know, Bible is, you know, it's good for some things, but there's some things you don't really need to be, bring the Bible into. We have this notion in our culture, we talk about um, the secular world, and with the idea there is a secular world, then there is a, a Christian or non-secular world. And they, they act, that's actually not a biblical idea. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. That means every part of this world, of our lives, is under heaven. And so, that's why in scripture it talks about fathers, you know, um, do not be too harsh on your children. It talks about how a, a, a husband relates to a wife, how a wife relates to a, a, a husband. It talks about how children relate to their parents. It talks about how employers relate to their employee, how employees relate to their employers. It talks about how citizens relate to the government and how governments are supposed to relate. So even to is under authority from God. And this is why the church has a place to play in, in instructing our government and saying this has to be done in Concert with what heaven demands. That's why we have a responsibility. Because the Bible, the word of God, brings to bear its authority, the authority of the Most High God, upon everything, including our government. The government is not above God. Everyone is subjected under God. But if we don't know the doctrine, if, we don't, if we're ignorant of the word of God, then how can we possibly imagine that we can live our lives properly. If you don't know where the lines are, then how can you run the race? How, how do you know you're going to be disqualified? How do you know when you've been disqualified? If there are no lines there, that's what this doctrine is good for. And that's why we have to make a practice of it in our families um, as, as singles to spend time in the Word. We have to, the Bible says, let this Word richly dwell in you. 
Let it dwell in you. Because for every occasion, there is a word that can come to guide you, to encourage you, to correct you. That's what this word does. It's very important. And when the word comes, let us make sure that we are watching our lives and our doctrine closely. And then thirdly, we talk about drinking deep from grace. So you've got your athletes who have been running for your marathon runners, running for hours. It takes four hours to run a marathon sometimes, you know, for the, is it four hours here? Some people do four hours. It's a long time to be running. It's a very long time to be running. And that's why you see these guys when they're running, they, they come across stands with water in it. And they don't just ignore it. They rush to it, grab that water, squeeze some into their mouth, pour some over their head, drench themselves in it. Why? Because they need strength to keep on going. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how, you know, elite you are. Doesn't matter how spiritual you are. In this journey, there will be knocks, there will be bumps. In this journey, there will be highs, there will be lows, there will be disappointments. There will be twists and turns and things that don't go away. There will be errors and there will be mistakes that you make, just like we see David and Saul make. But what is the difference? We saw David come back to God and says, Against you, O Lord, have I sinned. We saw Saul at the end of his life rather like, rather do what the thief you know, in, in the, in, in the, on the cross did, where he says, turns to Christ and says, Have mercy on me. I know I'm, an innocent, I'm a sinful man, but have mercy on me. What does Saul do? He turns around to his armor bearer and says, run me through. And why does he want him to run him through? He says, so that those uncircumcised Philistines will not come and mistreat my body. You see, he was more concerned about what the Philistines will do to his body than what God will do to his soul. And this is a problem that we can face where the, the fear of man or the, the, um, our estimation, how we are seen by others, is of so much more greater concern than how God feels about us. And so we need to drink from grace. We need to go back to God. It says in Ephesians 2, that for grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that none may boast. And we read this a lot of times on Sunday mornings. This scripture is brought out to remind us about the grace of God. We are saved by God's grace. The sad reality of it is we think that's where God's grace stops. And people say, no, 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 I, I, I trust in the grace of God. Really? In actuality, many people come and say, yeah, we, we, we come to God and we, he's forgiven our sins. And then as we live our life, we step out into the day, We'll feel confident that, yeah, I, I, I can do that by my own power. Yeah, I, I, can, I can go and, and, and speak to that person about Christ by my own power. Yeah, I can live a life of sin by my own power. And how do we see this? We see this when we sin. And rather than turn to God and, and fall to God, what do we do? We say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this extra thing in church. I'm going to give this extra charity. I'm going to do this extra good thing. I'm going to be extra kind to people today. Why? Because we're trying to cover our sin, our failings, with all those other extra additional bits. We forget that is the job of grace. We forget that's what grace does. Many times we, we understand that we are saved by grace, but what we forget is that we are saved by grace. 
We are being saved by grace, and we will be saved by grace at the end. It is grace all the way through. We don't get a break from grace. We don't get a break from grace. We don't, we don't ever graduate from grace. We don't ever say, well, now I'm a, I'm a pastor. I have 20,000 people that listen to my sermon every Sunday. You know, we don't, we don't say that. And then we say, yeah, I've, I've reached that level. But I, I, I think I'm okay now. This was the error of Saul. He thought he would try to secure his throne by his own power. You see what Saul said to Jonathan when he discovered you know, Jonathan's friendship and loyalty to David. And, you know, Saul actually uses very strong words for, for Jonathan. He says, he calls his own son, the first in line to the throne. He says, you son of a whore. He says, why would you side with David? Do you not know he seeks your throne? Do you not know that I am trying to establish these thrones, this throne for you? And the scripture comes to mind that says, except the Lord builds a house, those that labor, labor in vain. It's very important because if God is not building your house, is not building your life, if God is not the one that is building your righteousness, every other thing you're doing is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. And so we have to remember this, that it is God has saved us, but he's God that's saving us, and his grace is dynamic. It's like a child learning to walk for the first time, and the parents hold the child's hand. The child puts one feet in front of the other, and some child, the child is a bit reluctant to move forward. The parent gently pushes that child or draws that child closer to themselves, just to encourage that child to walk a bit further. And sometimes the child wants to fall, and the parent catches and sees instinctively what's going to happen. And God's grace is like that, always working behind the scenes. It says, and Paul writes, that work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that wills it in you to do according to his good purposes. So the first part of that, of that um, 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 instruction was, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have to work out your salvation. You have to come to God. You have to bring yourself before him. You have to live by this doctrine. But God wills it in you to do and work according to his, his good purposes. And it's a mystery to an extent. But there is something that is dynamic about God's grace. That even when we are trying, when we wake up in the morning and go, oh my goodness, oh, I, I just want to do something else apart from spend time with God. God is still working in there, still encouraging us. When we feel like, oh my goodness, I've been, I spent so much time away from God this past month. Oh my goodness, I don't think, I don't think he's too happy with me. God's grace is calling even then. It's drawing us like that little child. Encouraging us. And when we think, oh, I, I failed. I was, I was a man of God or a woman of God 20 years ago. And I preached to so many people and I did all these works. But look at me now. Do you, do you know the sin I'm in? But God's grace still comes and is still calling and is still working today. There's the image of, the, um, of, of, the, of Niagara Falls. Um, it's, a, it's a waterfall that has gone on. For thousands of years. But when you go to the Niagara Fall, you don't think this has been going on for a thousand years or how long it's been going for. Because the amount of water coming down from it today, it's not, it's not like I've got a tank here and if I, if I open too much of it, it's going to run out. Niagara Falls is not like that. It's still running full force. Metric tons of water 
falling over the thing, year after year, day after day, second after second. And that is what God's grace is like. The problem is we think it's like a little tank. You know, I've, I used a little bit yesterday. And, you know, if I use too much, that's the end of it. But God's like, I've got so much more. I've got so much more. And that's what it says to us in scriptures that he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. You see, Saul in his life thought of himself as, I have achieved this status. He forgot God gave it to him. He thought, I will maintain the status. He forgot God is one that builds a house and maintains it. He was proud in his thinking. And many times we are proud in our thinking. We let pride get into our hearts. We say, well, I've, I've, been, uh, I've been a Christian for X number of years. And so that's beneath me. That is pride. There is no grace in pride. But those who come before him, he gives grace to the humble. You know, Tim talks about the grace of God pouncing. He, talks about, he, he talked about the, um, the prodigal son whose father was waiting for him. And his, his father saw his figure from the horizon. His father was leaping over the building, jumping, running. Shirts up or, or, or skirt up or whatever people wore back in those days. Running for his son. Pouncing on him. Clothing him. Washing him. Cleaning him. Dressing him up. And that's what God's grace is like for us. And one of my most favorite scripture, which I'll end with, is um, in John 6.37. And so was a was a was a time when Christ was he had a multitude of people standing in front of him, and he was talking about God's sovereignty in our salvation. But then he says something that I I I always always um, bring to mind when I when I'm in need of that grace when I when I realize and I come to the end of myself. He says in John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whomever comes to me I will never cast out. And here is um, a question for you. In the history of, of the faith coming, how many people has Christ rejected? How many prostitutes? How many sinful um, churchgoers? How many drug dealers has, has God refused? Has Christ refused? The answer is zero. Because it says, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. <coughs> now, you could say, oh, dude, you don't understand how bad I messed up. You're not that special. It says, whoever, you're not that special. You're not that one special guy who is not under whoever. You are also part of the whoever. And the instructions, whoever comes to me. And I'm like this, it doesn't say whoever comes to me. And you know, you have to, you have to first make the church fund go up to a hundred thousand then i will listen to you oh oh, you you have to first join a a ministry in the church then i'll listen to you he says whoever comes to me come to me and that is the the command the instruction that he draws us close to him and so today i'm just going to welcome the the team to come up um and and just to um and, and and just lead us in a time of worship and as, as this word has been, uh, has been going out today, if you feel in your heart that I feel far away from God than I was, you know, years ago or months ago, this is the time to come. 
this is the, the time to come. It says in scriptures, it says that do not be like those that talking about the children of Israel who hardened their heart when they heard the, the word of the Lord. Now is the time. Now is the time of, of redemption. Now is the time of salvation. And if you feel like, I, I, I don't have a relationship with this God. He's calling you. You are on the wherever. You are also part of that wherever. And he's calling you to him. And he will never cast those who come to him. Oh wait, thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way. 